Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this conversation, we're going to be looking at Mark's Gospel, and it's, I guess, different to Matthew's Gospel in all sorts of ways. Help us with a reminder of kind of when it was written, Mike. Yeah, although Mark's Gospel comes second in the canon of Scripture, most scholars these days actually think it was written before Matthew's Gospel. So whereas Matthew is dated late 50s to early 60s, this is dated as sort of mid to late 50s. And the reason they think Mark was written first was because many years ago, some scholars started to compare the Gospels. And one of the things they discovered was that Matthew and Luke seemed to follow exactly the storyline that Mark had in his Gospel. In fact, not only did they follow the story, at times they actually copied the story. They even seemed to have exactly the same wording. Now, as any school teacher knows, if you get exactly the same wording, somebody's been copying. But of course, that wasn't a bad thing necessarily in the ancient world. To copy someone else's work was actually to esteem, to honour, actually to say, I thoroughly agree with this. So they have a slightly different approach to how they would see that. Bearing in mind that Matthew, who was an eyewitness, he was there at the time, if he was copying anything from Mark's Gospel, he would know whether or not it was true or not. Yes, exactly. And actually, that's one reason why there are some scholars who think, why would Matthew, an eyewitness, want to copy from Mark as a framework who wasn't an eyewitness? And that's a really good question. But what we do know from really early church history evidence is that Mark, John Mark, who is related to Barnabas, we discover in the book of Acts, that he was a, a sort of sidekick of Peter in Rome. He's actually described by an early church bishop called uh, Bishop Papius, 125 AD. And he in turn quotes the elder John, who was writing around 90 AD, that John Mark was the interpreter of Peter is the word he uses, and that he recorded accurately, though not necessarily in order, all that he heard Jesus speak and do. So what we've got is Mark being the guy who ended up writing down Peter's story, which is why Peter is often a key figure in Mark's gospel. So here is Peter, one of the pillars of the church, who's had his story committed to writing through his helper and assistant, Mark, and so Matthew finds no problem at all basing his gospel around that. He's going to expand it. He's going to put in other material that he thinks is important. He's going to give it a framework that was important to him, but he's going to track exactly the same storyline. So whereas you were saying in the previous episode that Matthew was writing very much for a Jewish readership, who, who was Mark writing for? Mark was almost certainly writing for a mix of a Jewish and Gentile readership. Now, he's based in Rome, which is where Peter ended up. We know that Rome was a very cosmopolitan city, people from every race, certainly many Jews there, that many that before too long the emperor would end up kicking them out of the city. 
So it's a mixed community and therefore the church there was almost certainly a mixed community as well. I, I think probably there were more Gentiles than Jews there, certainly. And one of the reasons for that is a little thing we get in Mark where he often explains either Jewish customs or names. So, for example, in Mark's gospel, we find at one point someone coming to Jesus and saying, Rabbi, brackets, which means teacher, close brackets. Now, no Jew would need to be told what a rabbi was. But, of course, a Gentile readership would. So it's a mixed audience, but probably a more predominantly Gentile audience. How else does it differ to Matthew's gospel in its style? Oh, one of the biggest things about Mark's gospel is that Mark is Mr. Action Man, or at least his Jesus is Mr. Action Man. It is incredibly fast moving. It's much shorter than Matthew's gospel for a start. We don't get as many references back to how this fits into the Old Testament story. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus is constantly moving on to the next thing. In fact, in the old authorised version, the King James version, uh, we used to have the words, and straightway Jesus did this, and after this, and after this, and after this. And he's sort of constantly moving on. And, and so Mark's gospel is much more faster paced. Jesus is constantly moving on. Yes, there is teaching and there are parables and there are miracles but his Jesus is a man of action. His Jesus is a man who's come to shake things and to move them along. Do you think that reflects, to some extent, his source material in Peter? Was Peter this kind of fast and furious kind of guy? Yeah, there's a really good comment, because I think that's exactly right. We know that Peter was uh, pretty impetuous, wasn't he? He often, you know, put his feet in his mouth before thinking about things, Uh so that could well reflect the source material and authenticate the source material that he was getting, that Peter, this working man, this former fisherman who wanted to get on with life, uh, ends up producing this sort of gospel that reflects exactly that. How does the gospel open? It opens in an interesting way. It's not at all like Matthew. Matthew, of course, gave us, we saw his genealogy, first of all, rooting the story in the Old Testament. And then we get the sort of the birth narratives, the, the Christmas story in Matthew. Mark is very different. Mark starts out his gospel with simply these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Gospel we saw in a previous episode means good news. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, remember Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, Jesus Messiah. So even in that word, he's linked the story. This is the Messiah they were telling you about in the Old Testament. Jesus Messiah, but this Messiah is not just a human Messiah, which is what Jews were expecting. In Jewish thinking, the Messiah would never be God. It would be God's anointed man, but not God. But Mark wants us to know from his very first sentence that he's going to tell us the story about Jesus, Messiah, who's son of God. And to underline that, he actually quotes from the Old Testament. He combines two passages from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40 
He says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, I'll send my messenger ahead of you, prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Now, two things there. First, he's talking about the prophecy about the coming of John the Baptist and the next few verses and only a few verses tell us John's story of how he came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins to prepare the way for Jesus. But second, he was preparing the way for who? For the Lord. Now, Isaiah had meant only one thing when he had said that. It was the coming of the Lord God in his vision. But who does Mark go straight on to tell us about? Jesus. In other words, he is saying right from this introduction that this is the story of the coming of God himself. This messianic figure turned out to be God himself. And he goes straight on to tell us about Jesus. This Jesus is that God who is the promised Messiah and he has come to us. Nobody less than God himself. Wow. When he uses the phrase, or the title even, the Son of God with a capital S and a capital G, how would that have been perceived by the Roman audience? Well, for many of the Roman audience, of course, Son of God in itself was not necessarily the sort of title that we might have thought of today. Even some of the emperors proclaimed themselves to be a son of God. They were divine. You know, these Roman emperors weren't behind the door when it came to modesty. That's one thing for sure. Uh, and some of them would ultimately end up demanding that every member of the empire at least once a year went into the imperial temple and acknowledged Caesar is Lord, Caesar is God. But what Mark is going to show us here is this is not just a son of God, like we might put it with small letters rather than capitals. Greek actually doesn't have capital letters like we do. But it's, this is not going to be a son of God like the Romans might have thought of. This really is the son of God. This is God himself come in person into this world. And, and this will come out again and again in the stories that he shows us. So what aspects of the life of Jesus then does Mark really focus in on and, and, and choose to include? Well, I think his opening chapters, in a sense, postures for the rest of the book. Um, actually, going through the whole book, there, there's a journey. His gospel takes us on a, a journey from ministry in Galilee and then beyond Galilee and then down to Jerusalem and then to the cross. So, Sometimes when you're reading Mark's gospel, you could look for that journey that he follows. But having announced that this messianic son of God is coming, he then goes on to tell us about the baptism and temptation of Jesus, just in very few verses. And then the calling of his disciples, again, just in a few verses. But there's a key word there, uh, a key sentence when he talks to them. In verse 14, we read that after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God, the gospel. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent 
and believe the good news. And some of these disciples start to do that. But there's the framework that Mark will take us through. The good news is here. The kingdom is near. So repent, change, believe in it and believe this good news. So he's got a passion to show us that this kingdom that was promised for so long by the Old Testament is now here. And he launches straight in. And the first couple of chapters in his gospel really show us what this kingdom looks like. And what he does is he piles up miracle after miracle to sort of go bang, 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 bang to us. So we see what is it like? What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God means the rule of God. And he shows us that when you let God rule, what happens? Well, if I just sum up those first few stories, when you let God rule through Jesus, evil spirits get cast out, the sick get healed, lepers, the unclean, are made whole. And of course, leprosy wasn't just a disease. It was a social stigma. You were isolated. So the isolated get drawn in. The paralytic gets healed, but his particular paralysis was rooted in sin in his life. That's not true of every paralysis, let's hasten to say, but his was, and Jesus forgives his sins. And he even has authority over things like fasting and the rules of the Sabbath. So Mark in those first two or three chapters goes bang, 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 authority over this, authority over that, authority over the other, authority over that which keeps us from God, authority even over religion that gets in the way. This Jesus, this son of man and son of God is one who has come to deal with that and break through all of that and bring us the good news of the kingdom, because when God the King comes into our life, all these things change. And that really sets the pace and the tone for the rest of his gospel. I've got to ask you about miracles. You said that there's lots of them in Mark's gospel. Were miracles for then, but not for now? <laughs> well, you do get some people who will say that. I think I would say this about miracles generally in the Bible. Miracles tend not to be spread throughout every page of the whole Bible. They do tend to occur at significant points in the story when they are often needed. So we find them with Elijah and Elisha when faith has almost been extinguished. We certainly find them here in Jesus. So I think one has to be honest and say they're not consistent throughout the whole of the Bible. They do come at key points as a way of authenticating the message at that time. However, we then got to add in the fact that not only are Jesus's miracles consistent throughout his ministry in all four Gospels, he then actually sends out his disciples to go and do these miracles. Even at the very end of Mark's Gospel, in a short passage that actually may not be part of the original gospel, but was added just to round it off at a very early stage because it, it ends up quite abrupt and someone added it. But one of the interesting things that is added is that Jesus sends them out to go into all the world and to preach the good news 
to all of creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they'll drive out demons. They'll speak in new tongues. They'll pick up snakes with their hands when they drink deadly poison. It won't hurt them. In other words, there will be nothing that can stop the advance and the progress of the gospel. They will place their hands on sick people and they will get well. So there is no doubt that Jesus sent out his disciples to continue to both preach and pray. These were like left foot, right foot of advancing the kingdom. The two went together in his ministry. They're there when he sends out his disciples. There at the very end of the gospel, there is an expectation that those who are sent out in his name in the future will be expected to do the same, both to preach and to pray. So there is no expectation in the New Testament that miracles were just for them. Now, I I know there are some Christian theologies that see that as just belonging to a dispensation, a time period when those things were for then and not for now. But I think that really is an imposing of an external structure on Scripture. If you let Scripture take you where it wants to take you itself, and then certainly as we look at the book of Acts and some of the letters, we see that miracles continued to be a part of the mission of the church. The reality is not every person got healed every time. And let me just throw that in. Paul had this problem with his eyes and he says, three times I asked the Lord to heal me of this and God just said, my grace is sufficient for you. So there are times when for some reason God doesn't. There's another one of his letters where he says that I had to leave Trophimus in Miletus because he was sick. Now, I'm sure he would have prayed for him, but he didn't get better at that moment. But, you know, I still think um, in this culture in which we live today that feels it's had so much of religion what a powerful part of the preaching of the gospel it would be if we would take courage in both hands and just do what it says pray for the sick and leave the outcome to god as part of the preaching of the good news that when god comes things change and of course if mark's source is peter peter himself would have been engaged with miracles after Jesus had died and risen and ascended. Absolutely. And we find some of those in the book of Acts, even as early as Acts chapter three. There he is going to the temple one day, praying for a paralyzed man who gets healed. So Peter himself had seen this. Peter passionately believed this. But perhaps all of that just leads us to one other element of Mark's gospel that it would be good to put in as a sort of just a balance to that. I'm not wanting to wipe it out because I, 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 do you know what? I think it's difficult to be an authentic Christian and not to be at least be ready to pray in Jesus's name for those who are sick. That would come out of the Gospels. But Mark does include another important element of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it is one that we won't like particularly in our comfortable 21st century Western culture. And that is there's an awful lot in Mark's gospel about the cost of following Jesus 
the cost of being a disciple, and in particular, the suffering that it sometimes brings. So this is not a gung-ho, we will now live on cloud nine, we will never get sick, everybody we ever touch will will always be healed. Yes, there is that element, but there is also an element where we as Christians are called to walk in the steps of our master. And uh, maybe we could just look at one passage in, in Mark chapter 8, which is a real turning point in the book, which addresses this issue. It's when Jesus goes up to Caesarea Philippi, which is a well-known spot for polytheism. And there, there were little shrines there, particularly to the god Pan. And it's there in the midst of polytheism, many gods, a bit like our culture today, where there are many gods of different kinds, that Jesus says to his followers, who are people saying that I am? And they say, oh, well, uh, some say that you are uh, John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah. Others are saying you're a prophet. And then Jesus asked the most important question that all of us have to answer. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's Peter who lies behind Mark's gospel who says in Mark 8, verse 29, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And he says, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Sounds a bit odd, but that's simply because in those days, people were expecting Messiah to be a military and political deliverer. Jesus didn't want them going down that line. But let me read then the next few verses He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Interesting, isn't it? Peter, the one who was always quick to speak. He said, no, no, Lord, hang on. Look, you just asked me who I am. I said, you're the Messiah. You said, you've got it, boy. And now you're talking about Messiah suffering. Now, Lord, we all know Messiah is coming as a conquering hero. And, and so he, he wants to take Jesus and correct him in his theology. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Oh, my goodness, he's just gone from having been praised at what he's got to Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. You're still thinking in human ways about this, Peter. And then he called the crowd to him and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross And follow me, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and my gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet to forfeit his soul? So Peter was right, but he was wrong. He was right in seeing that Jesus was the promised Messiah. He was wrong in his understanding of how Jesus would work out that messiahship. He was looking for a messiah with a sword. And Jesus was saying, no, Peter, it's going to be a messiah 
with a cross, suffering and death will bring in God's kingdom. And Peter, I've got more news for you. Not only is this the path for me, suffering, death, this is the path for you and actually for anyone who wants to face me. You are going to have to count the cost. You are going to have to be ready to take up your cross. Now, these days we use that picture, don't we? Oh, it's a cross I have to bear as being some sort of burden that we've got to carry. But of course, in Jesus's day, you only took up a cross for one purpose. And that's when Rome had compelled you to carry it to your place of crucifixion. Crucifixion was death by torture. So here is Jesus saying and Peter recording and Mark recording through Peter this call that, yes, the gospel is about the kingdom is here and it's coming and it's good news and life changes and there are miracles, but there is also a cost. And part of that cost is discipleship to the point of being ready to suffer for Jesus, even to the point of death. And do you know what? That is a very different message to the message that is often presented as the gospel today. Come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. I often feel like changing it. Come to Jesus and all your problems will start. <laughs> but of course they start with one who is the God and creator of the whole universe and who's well able to take you through them and do some amazing stuff in your own life and character as he does so. To what extent is Mark expecting a response from his readers by asking that question that Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Oh, yes. I mean, this this book is a gospel. It's an announcement of good news. But just like when the gospel's preached today, the gospel demands a response. And again and again throughout this gospel, we see opportunities where the reader or the listener, as it would have been originally before everyone had their own copy, is invited to make choices. I mean, even some of the parables that Jesus tells are designed to, to make us think, what about me? So the parable of the sower, four kinds of seed, where's the seed landing in my life? So it is very much a book that is calling for a response. You can't just read that and think, oh, that was a nice story. Let's put that away. You have to read it and respond to this focal person whom this story is all about, Jesus, the Son of God, come to us, not just to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sin and take us to heaven one day, but to invite us into a journey of discipleship and change with him and to become part of God's exciting program for the universe. And within the gospel itself, what kind of responses were there from others? I mean, for example, when Jesus died. We get very mixed responses uh, throughout the, the gospel. Uh, I mean, we find people who want to follow, but we find also those who will reject. The religious leaders in particular are those who will uh, reject. After his death, of course, we... We find some lovely stories at the end of the gospel surrounding the 
the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. As Jesus dies, cries out for a last time, we read that the curtain of the temple was torn into. Powerful picture there of that veil in the temple that kept humans and God separate, being ripped open through his death. The way is open to God. And even the Roman centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. And then we find that some of the women were watching. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, uh, and uh, some of the women that had followed him, who'd come to take care of his needs. And this man called Joseph of Arimathea, one of the religious leaders who was soft and tender to the message of Jesus and who goes to Pilate and asks for his body to be taken down so that he can put it in a tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And what we are left with at the end of the gospel are these faithful few, and it is a few, these faithful few, most of them women, it has to be said. Shame on the men. These courageous women who are there to the bitter end. And the lovely thing is, as we come to chapter 16 and the close of the story, that when the Sabbath is over on the third day after his resurrection, third day as Jews counted the days, Mary, the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that it might go to the tomb and they go there and they find the tomb empty and they run and they take the message to Peter and to the other disciples. And, and the gospel ends somewhat open-endedly there in its original ending before it has that rounding off story. Um, so there are only the faithful few who were left there at the end. But the great story is, as we'll continue to track this story, these faithful few who believe in this Jesus who has now not just come, but who has died and risen again and who will empower them through his spirit, go out to take this message of the gospel of the kingdom throughout the whole world. So in summary, if you were wanted to recommend Mark's gospel to somebody to read, what would be the main reason you would do so? I really recommend Mark to people who are, coming to discover Jesus for the first time, who are wanting to know just the basics of his story, what he did, what he taught. It's very short. It's fast moving. It's easy to read. It's actually written in very simple language. This is, if you like, the tabloid version uh, as opposed to the broadsheet version of the story of Jesus. So it's great for people who are wanting to explore about Jesus, great for new Christians. But, you know, even for those of us who've been Christians for a long time, there's some great stuff in here, and particularly this challenge about what it means to be a faithful disciple of Jesus and to be ready even to embrace the challenge of suffering that that brings with it as well. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation, this is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.